before we get to our, our, well, let me just go ahead and get to our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. I've got a good friend of mine that listens to our, he podcasts these messages, and he busted me the other day because I messed up the sermon series title a couple weeks ago. I said something along the lines of how God makes men bad, and I hate it when I preach heresy. But I go, no, that's not what I meant to say. Maybe you were listening, and you guys just let it, let it roll. But anyways, so we've been going through this series through the book of Romans, and we've been calling this series How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. That's what we were going through, because the overall arching theme of the book of Romans is the imputed righteousness of Christ, how God in his holiness will give us his righteousness through faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So with that, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in 35 through 39 this morning. A sermon I'm calling The Love of God. As you're getting your Bibles there, I've got, I've got a quote for you. If you could put that quote up on the screen. Got the, here, here's a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. I wish I didn't say this. I wish I was the first one to say this. It wasn't me. But he said, you are more wicked than you ever dared to believe, and you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. That's what I want us to know. I mean, so many people are like, well, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're wicked. I'm wicked. We are wicked human beings, and yet God still loves us. That's what we are talking about today. We are going to be talking about the love of God and the proof positive that we can know that God loves us. I heard a story of a mom. This mom, she had an office at her house, and she's in her office busily writing checks and paying bills and sending letters all the while. Her little five-year-old daughter is in the other room playing with her dolly. And eventually, the mom finished doing what she was doing. She called her daughter into the office, and the little daughter came in and crawled up on her mom's lap and just was cuddling her little mom. And her mom asked her, she says, Sweetie, were you having fun playing with your dolly while I was busy doing what I was doing? And the little girl said, Oh, yes, Mommy, I, I was having such a good time with her. And she, sa- she says, you know what, I love this little dolly, but you know what? I got tired of loving her because though I love my dolly, she doesn't love me back. And the mom asked her little daughter, says, is that why you love me? And she said, that's one reason, mommy, but that's not the best reason. And she said, well, what is the best reason then? She said, well, can't you guess the best reason? She said, the reason I love you is because you loved me when I was too little to take care of myself, and you loved me when I didn't love you back. I tell that story because that's a picture of God's love for us. That he loved us before we ever even existed. He loved us before the foundations of the world. And like a mother's love, God's love is not conditional on how much we love him. Do you understand that? God's love is not conditional on you. Because we say things like, well, I'll love that person if, then enter you know, insert whatever sentence you want to say. But the very fact that God loves us, in fact, he loves us despite of how wicked we are. This is what, something I hope you come to know before we leave here today, and that is how much God loves you. That he loves you, and he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place for what we have done. And that is what Paul has been trying to get across to the church of Rome for now eight chapters in this letter. And that he wants us to know not only God loves us, that Jesus died for us, he's indwelled us by the Holy Spirit, but a believer's salvation, it's like a done deal. If you place saving faith in Jesus Christ, you can bet the farm on your salvation. You can take it to the bank and use whatever analogy that you would like to convey. 
Why would I say that? Well, the very first sentence in Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no damnatory sentence coming to those who are believers. Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this book, and he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. And the Apostle Paul was an accomplice to murder, maybe several times over, may have ever had an actual firsthand in the death of a Christian himself. But Paul goes on to explain that those who are in Christ Jesus have been adopted into the family of God. They are in God's eternal family. So this is something that we often forget, and that's the permanency of adoption. An adopted son or an adopted daughter, they cannot forfeit their, their, their family. Nor can an adoptive father kick an, adopt, kick an adoptive child out of their family. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul chose to use that language when he described how permanent this family of God is. So all throughout Romans chapter 8, Paul has been explaining how God the Father has placed God the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, inside the adopted son of the adopted child of God as proof positive. Like this is proof positive. You can take this to the bank. There is future glorification coming your way. And then Paul, if you remember, he asked a series of questions. Every question was better than the question before, in my opinion. And, and then I'm just going to sum up all the questions this. And here's the question. What's better than this? What is better than what Paul has been explaining in the book of Romans? What is better than, than the, the, the person that has the wrath of God bearing down on him, but then, but then no, nothing can save them but the love of Christ, how Christ went to the cross, died for our sins, and if we place saving faith in him, then we're saved. And we're renewed, and we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we've been adopted by the Father. What is better than this? The answer is nothing. There is absolutely nothing anywhere, anytime, any place that is better than what Paul has been explaining here. If I or anybody, let's just say some famous novelist that's just great at writing, if they try to come up with some story, it's going to pale in comparison to the non-fictional book that's called the Bible, written by God himself, right? Because this book is life-transforming. They will literally change a, a fallen human being and make them suitable for heaven, the words of God will. And when you come to recognize that you are a wretch, and then you see how awesome the Savior is, it literally changes you from the inside out. What in the world can do that? There's only one answer, and that is the love of God. And with that, let's pick up our Bible. So let's begin reading in verse 35. The word of God says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who, do, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, or, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul wants you to know. Paul wants you to know that about the love of God and, and how amazing this is. Paul has been laying on like a four-rung ladder, a four-step process here on this. And there's a, all a flow to what Paul is talking about here. 
There's five verses that we're covering today, and Paul mentions the love of God three times. If you're ever reading your Bible, and you're trying to like read it and study, and like, hey, what's the big theme that God wants me to know in this text? Well, when you see something repeated again and again and again, that's what God wants you to know. So the emphasis in this text, verse 35 through 39, is all about God's love for his adoptive kids. Let's, let's read those three times. Verse 35, verse 37, and verse 39. Read it. It says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Drop down to verse 37. No, and in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jump to verse 39. He says, Nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one. Paul wants us to understand the principle of God's love. Three times in five verses, Paul speaks of the love of God. This is the theme of what Paul wants us to understand. Let's look back. Let's back up to chapter 5, verse 5. Look what Paul said there. Put up there. It says, this is verse 5, Romans 5. It says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's verse 5. Drop down to verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners... Christ died for us. I'm going to leave those two verses up on the, on the, on the screen because I want to come back to it in a minute. Because this is very basic stuff. This is Christianity 101. But let me state this as, as simplistically as I possibly can. We know God loves because of what he gave. I want you to know that Christianity is a gift religion. Let's say you have a business. There's probably several you here that do have a business. And let's say you pay your employees once a month. And at the end of the month, it comes time to do their payroll, and you write them a check. Here's their check, their payroll. And you go and you hand it to them, and you say, here, I've got a little gift for you. What would happen? I'll tell you what happened. They're going to be offended, right? So, no, that's not a gift. That's what I earned. I earned that. You're not giving that to me. That's what I deserve, Right? That's not Christianity, okay? Christianity is about God's sheer grace, God's total generosity. Salvation and a relationship with God and adoption into his family is nothing we could ever earn. We don't deserve it, and yet he gave it anyways. And this is what I want want you to know, that that we know God loves because of what he gave. So those verses are still up on 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 the screen. Answer out loud. What did the Father give us? Spirit and the Son. That's right. God the Father gave God the Spirit, and He gave God the Son. And He gave them as a gift. You don't earn those. You don't deserve those. But the third member of the Trinity and the second member of the Trinity, given by the first member of the Trinity, so God, He gave Himself. Think about it. What major world religion does the the, the center of that religion, where does he give? The truth is none. Every world religion desires that you give to to that one, but only in Christianity, God give himself. This is some deep theological truth, but let me try to say it even more simply if I can. We know God loves because he showed up. I know there's some that doesn't like it when 
when Christianity gets boiled down that simply, but I'm trying to just make it like everybody can understand this. We know that God loves because he showed up. When I was in high school, I, I, I wrestled, and, and so we'd be at a, at a duel, and I'm about to take the mat, and I've got my shoes laced up, and I'm stepping on the mat, and the truth is, a little boy, I'm scanning the crowd. And I'm scanning the crowd. I want to see my teammates on the chair. I definitely want to see my coach give me some last-minute tips but I'm looking for my grandparents. I'm looking for my mom. But the truth is there's one person I want to see more than anybody else. I want to see my dad. Because if I can lock eyes with my dad, I know that I'm important to him. Well, I'm telling you this because you're important to God the Father. How do we know that? Because he showed up. And he didn't just show up. He showed up with two gifts, the gift of the Spirit and gift of the Son. And the Apostle John said, he said, God is love. In other words, love is at the very core, the essence of who God is. It was, I heard this story happen many, many years ago. There was a class in a seminary course. And this seminary course had this visiting uh, professor. He was re- renowned for his lectures. And he gave his lecture and just blowing the students' minds away. And then there was a question and answer portion afterwards, and one student raised his hand, and he said, out of all the great theological truths you've ever learned, what has affected your life the most? And that professor thought for a minute, and he said this. He says, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's as profound as you can possibly get. We sing it to our kids over and over, but then we forget as adults. Why? We shouldn't. That is one of the most profound things you will ever hear. And that is the theme of the Bible, that God's love is so profound and is so, so perfect for the people that he's created. I was told a story about D.L. Moody. If you don't know D.L. Moody, one of the great theologians of years past, and this is something that he wanted to look into. Long before the ages of computers, he wanted to look into every time that the theme of God's love appears in the Bible. So he sits down with the Bible and a in a concordance and paper and pencil, and he started to sketch out every time that that great theme appears in the Bible. And when it was all done, Moody said, there is no such truth in the whole Bible that ought to affect us as much as the love of God. I think the Apostle John would agree with D.L. Moody. Read what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called Children of God. John's saying, check this out. Don't miss this. This is amazing. Please recognize the kind of love that the Father has that we can be called children of God. In Jeremiah 31, God said to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's why they're called God's chosen people. The everlasting love means it's never going to be taken away. Deuteronomy 7, God said, It was not because you were more numerous, more number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the people, but it's because the Lord loves you. You know, if you want, you can go onto Amazon, search T-shirts, and you can buy a T-shirt that says, God loves you. But then in superscript underneath, underneath it, it says, But he loves me the best. If you want to get me a shirt, that'd be a good one to get me. I might, I'd wear that one. Anybody gets me, I'm wearing it up here on stage. <laughs> but you know what makes God's love so amazing? This should blow you away when you really consider it. And I think we forget this. But God's love is so amazing because he is so holy. 
You see, God is holy. He's perfect. He's without flaw and without sin. And the truth is, deep down, we know we're not. Whether we want to admit it or not, we know that we are far, far from being holy because God is holy, God is unapproachable, and yet in his love, he approaches us. Remember back in the Old Testament, there was this scene, uh, the, 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 the God's people are camped out around the base of Mount Sinai, and, and God's up at the top of the mountain. There's thunder and lightning and kind of glory, and the people are scared. They're like, hey, Mo, you go up there, and you talk to God for us, and come down and tell us what God says, because we're scared. And Moses went. He wanted to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory, God. And God said, hey, Mo, you can't handle it. It will melt your face off like Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what it's going to do. You can't handle it, right? That's how holy God is. In, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah got a little glimpse of God, and he came undone. He, 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 said, he, he said, woe is me, for I'm a man that's undone. I'm a man unclean, with unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. There's these strange angelic creatures that are flying day and night in the very throne room of God. With two, they cover their eyes, and two, they cover their feet. With two, they, they fly, and all they sing out is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so I want us to understand that God is holy. So we can't approach God, but in his love, he comes for us. In his love, he approaches us. We don't go to God. He approaches us. And that's his love. So here's the question. How did God approach us? How did God come for us? Look in verse 39 of Romans chapter 8. He tells us. Paul says, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation be able to separate us from the love of God in what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, that's how God approached us. There was, a, there was a day, it was actually the night before the crucifixion. Jesus is in the upper room with his, his closest friends. And Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Look at the reply found in John 14, verse 8. It's Philip. Philip says, said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Who's ever seen me has seen the Father. How in the world can God the Son say you've seen the Father? Because Jesus is not the Father. The Father and Son, they are co-equal. They are co-in-majesty, co-eternal, equal in glory, but yet very distinct. You see... When Jesus showed up, that's God incarnate. That's to say, if you've, you have now seen the very love of God. Because Jesus' whole life was God's love on display. The love of God was put on blast when Jesus came to the earth. And Jesus never met, didn't meet anybody he didn't love. He loved John, the beloved. He even loved little old Peter that was always sticking his foot in his mouth. And the truth is, he even loved Judas. I want to say that I would love Judas if I was in Jesus' sandals, but the truth is, I probably wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. Jesus loved the worst of sinners, and Jesus loved the best of saints, and he loves everyone in between. 
It was said that Billy Graham, at all his, his, his uh, crusades, he would always say, God loves you. God loves you. And God loves you. He would say it over and over and over again. And somebody said, Dr. Graham, why do you always say God loves you? And he said, because if you knew that, I mean, if you really knew that, it would transform your life. Knowing that a holy, perfect God loves a wretched sinner like you and me, that should cause us relief. That should cause us joy. That should humble us at our core. To know that God's plan includes you, to know God's plan involves me, because he sent his son to die. And this love is an eternal love. Look what Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says. This is God speaking. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. With an everlasting love. That's how God himself describes his love. That means that God's love is prehistoric. That means that God's love is pre-fall of man. That means before you were ever born. It also means it can't be taken away. It means it can never end. That's what everlasting love means. If you were to describe it in any other way, how would you say it? It's an eternal love. It's an everlasting love. And that is the principle that that Paul wants us to know about God's love. That is the principle, but we have a problem. Look at the problem in Romans 8, verse 35. Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Here's the problem. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Point number two for us this morning. Paul wants us to understand the threats to God's love. Paul is asking another ground-shattering question here. And this, this question is built in reality. Because this is a question people have been asking for centuries. I'm sure there's quite a few believers here right now that have asked this question in their life, and maybe they didn't ask it this morning. It's questions like, can hard times separate us from God's love? Can suffering separate me from God's love? Can oppression separate me from God's love? Can starvation or exposure, can even death separate me from God's love? Paul is asking this question because Christianity is built in reality. There are circumstances that can hit you in this life, and you can look up and go, does God really love me? Let me ask you as you sit there, have you ever been through something? Maybe you're going through something right now, and you ask the question, does God love me? Are you going through something in your life? Maybe you don't like it, you never expect it, you never choose it for yourself, and it's caused you to question, does God really love me? Because it's dark, it hurts, it's painful, and you're thinking, well, if God loves me, I wouldn't be going through this. Since I'm going through this, that means God must not love me. You don't have to raise your hand. We've all been there. If you've been on this earth long enough, you've asked that question, and that's the question, does God love me? Well, look at the first noun that Paul lists in this line of questioning to what can separate you from God's love. Paul asks, shall tribulation separate us from the love of God? The word tribulation in the Greek, it, it could mean, it means pressures of life. Okay, that word means to be squeezed and placed under pressure. And we all face that. If you live long enough, you're going to face pressures. The second word Paul uses is distress. This is, it's a Greek word that we get our English word stenosis from. It means crushed on all sides. Paul is painting a picture of someone that is like trashed in a, trapped in a trash compactor, getting squeezed on all sides. 
And then Paul says persecutions. Remember who wrote this book? Who is penning this book right now that we're reading? It's a guy that was beat up. He was falsely imprisoned. He was stoned to death on multiple occasions. And Paul was the guy that asked, will persecution separate us from the love of God? And then in rapid fire succession, Paul, at least four things, he says famine or nakedness or danger or sword. I think Paul is listing, linking those four to what he just asked. Whether you experience one of those things or all of those things, it can make you wonder the truth, make you question that. Can I be separated from God's love? But notice that question, the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? The word separate, that Paul uses there is a word that Paul uses to describe divorce in other letters of his Bible. What could bring distance between you and God? That's what he's asking. Is there anything in the world that could divorce you from God's love? What can separate you from God's love? That's Paul's question. Now, if you notice, that's the question. Look at Paul's answer. Go to verse 36. Paul says, as it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you have a modern Bible translation as mine, you notice that it's indented. The Bible translators are trying to cue you in on a little fact that Paul is quoting scripture there. That there's other scripture that Paul is quoting when he tries to answer the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is quoting Psalms 44 there. So Paul is answering the question by quoting Scripture. Psalms 44 is about the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, the people who God loves. They're the people that he gave the land to. So they're in the land, but now they're surrounded in Psalms 44 by all these enemies. And they're crushing down on God's chosen people. And they're killing them, and they're taking them to to captivity. There's terrible things that are happening to God's chosen people. So what is Paul saying He's saying, who shall separate us from the love of God? But then lays on that that persecution has always been the story of God's people. So this this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, we shouldn't be surprised if we suffer because God's people always suffer. He's saying, if you're a true blue believer, then you can bet that suffering and persecution is coming your way. Jesus told his disciples one day, he says, you're going to be hated by the nations for my name's sake. If they hated me, They're going to hate you. That's what Jesus said about that. But then he didn't stop there. Jesus went on to say, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Let me ask you this. If you know your Old Testament, which one of the prophets was not persecuted? They all were. Every single one of them. So if you're being persecuted, you're kind of on the side of the who's who of the Bible. Guys like Daniel and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. John the Baptist. I know that's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament. How about Jesus? He was persecuted. I heard a story from Pastor Chip Ingram, if you don't know him, a great pastor. And he was telling this story how he would travel to China and he put on these conferences for these Chinese pastors that were pastoring these house churches. And he called it the Walk Through a Bible Training Seminar. And so he's leading this training seminar, and he got to meet this pastor of a home church somewhere in China, and they went out to dinner afterwards. And this pastor told Chip about there'd be these times he'd be on these evangelistic trips, and he'd be going out to tell people about Jesus. And so he's away from his family, and this day he's away that police came. 
and at the home, it's just his wife. So his wife convinced the police that she was really the pastor. She's the only pastor. That's not too uncommon in house church in China. And she said that the, the, the church had dispersed, and she's the only one left. And so to make a um, model of her, an example of her, the police grabbed her, took her to the police station, and beat her till she was bloodied and bruised. Pastor Chip said he listened intently as this pastor is telling uh, the story, and he said he tried to put his own feet into the shoes of this man. Like, how would he react? How would he react to these men that are beating his wife? He said, that's, that's a high price to pay for being in ministry, and quite honestly, I'm not sure how I'd respond. Frustration, anger, and a desire for vengeance would be hard to contain. He said, Pastor, pa- pastor Chip said, he asked the, the pastor, he said, how did you deal with it? And then Pastor Chip said that the pastor's answer was something he'll never forget. He, the Chinese pastor said, quote, as we talked later about it, my wife said, isn't it amazing that Jesus gave us the privilege to suffer for his name's sake so we can make that kind of sacrifice to thank him for suffering for us? You see, persecution does not separate a believer from the love of God. Persecution just simply shows you that you're one of God's people. So if you're a follower of Christ, expect persecution. Expect hard times. Expect suffering. Look what Paul says about this next. Go to verse 37. Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's the third point I have for you this morning. Point number three. Paul wants to give us a perspective of God's love. He said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, right? I think this is what Paul is doing. He's picturing, if you will, the individual that's being surrounded on all sides. They're in that trash compactor. There's all these things that are coming in that are trying to to separate them from God's great love. And here's Paul's answer, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word more than conquerors, it's three words in English. It's only one word in the Greek, and it's the Greek word hypernikos. Hypernikos. You might not speak Greek, but you probably hear the word hyper in that, right? Paul means super conquerors. That's what Paul is saying. That we are super conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's saying you're a superhero. You're like a real-life Avenger. That's what Paul is saying. Because a believer is more than a conqueror. A believer is a beneficiary of the outcome of what happened at Calvary. Do you think there was a satanic battle that happened in the heavenlies as Jesus Christ hung on the cross for our sins? Do you think so? I know so. Yes, absolutely. Because the devil did everything in his power to get Jesus to sin as he hung on the cross. Because if he can get Jesus to sin, then Jesus isn't the perfect Lamb of God. And he will not take away the sins of the world. But Jesus didn't give in. And Jesus gave his life as the perfect sacrifice of God. And so there's benefits for those who have trusted in him. To all that have trusted that, there's rewards that are coming. So any loss that we experience in this life, and it's going to pale in comparison to the glory and what's coming our way in heaven. This is what Jesus said this about this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one that has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my namesake, for my sake, and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold in this time, houses and brothers and sister and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, what you're going through now, it's nothing compared to what's waiting for you in heaven. You keep suffering the words you're suffering and be faith. Just know that I've got this thing. That's what, what Jesus was saying. And Paul said something similar in his second letter to the church at Corinth. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul said, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of all glory. That's what he's saying. Because we are super conquerors. We are hyper conquerors. We need to know that we can rest in what Christ has done for us no matter what we go through in this life. One more thing I want to add on. One more point that I want to leave you here with this, this morning before we close. And that is, has everything to do with the permanency of God's love? Read in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 38. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's my fourth and final point for us this morning. Point number four. Paul wants us to know of the permanency of God's love. Paul has made a very distinct, very inclusive list that covers absolutely everything there is. And then basically states, they will not be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know what's going to be able to separate a believer, an adoptive child of God from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. And then you're going to ask, well, Pastor John, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Why am I sure? Because the Apostle Paul said, for I am sure. I'm only sure because Paul is sure, right? The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, to, and convinces him to write for, I am sure. Because in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because his love for us is never going to be broken. Meaning a believer's faith will never die. We may have moments in, of doubt. You do that, I do that, we all do that. But a believer's faith will not die. That's why Paul said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, don't forget God the Spirit inspiring Paul to write, For I am sure, and then he lists everything there is. Paul said that death or the devil or yourself will not be able to separate you from God's love. Paul is saying there's no sphere of influence which you could exist. There's no state of being in which you could exist that would be outside the eternal love of Christ. Paul says angels can't separate you from God's love. Angels are pretty amazing creatures. I'd encourage you, do a study on them, see what they can do. They're absolutely amazing. They're powerful. But here's one thing they can't do. They can't separate you from God's love. See, a good angel cannot alter our salvation, nor would they, but, but Paul says they can't do it. Paul says that's impossible. And then Paul says, nor rulers. Maybe your Bible translation says principalities. I think since Paul just mentioned good angels, now he's mentioning the bad angels. Because there's good angels, there's also bad angels. We call them demons. The English Standard Version that I'm reading from says rulers. 
They can do a lot of things, but they can't separate a believer from God's love. They can torment, they can harass, they can inflict, but they can't separate. They can do all kinds of evil things, but they can't separate. So no holy angel, no unholy angel, no demon will be able to separate the adopted son or the adopted daughter from the love of God. So there's no state of being, there's no demons, there's no angels can alter the eternal glory coming the way for the believer. And just to throw in something else, Paul says, nor things present, nor things to come. Paul's saying there's nothing here and there's nothing now. There's nothing in the present age that will separate a believer from God's love. In the present time, at the present moment, or the future time, in a future moment, there is nothing, including the coming judgment of God on the world, to be able to separate a believer from God's love. You know, I think it's really sad when you talk to somebody who claims to be a believer and they don't know if they're going to make it. They're not sure. They're not, they don't, they're not conf- confirmed if they're going to be able to hang on. They're, per- they're worried about what hap- might happen today, what would happen right now. They don't know what's going to happen in the future, so they live in fear of the worst thing that could possibly happen that might be able to separate them from the love of God. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, it's not going to happen. If you talk to my wife, she can tell you a story from when she was a little girl. This isn't my story. This is her story. But I've heard, I've told, I've heard it so many times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you. And the story goes like this. When she was a little girl, she grew up in a church that, that told you could lose your salvation. It was taught that if, if you did not confess your last sin at the moment of death, then you would spend eternity from hell, in hell. And there was a, she, little Amy was going to this church, and there was a beautiful young lady in her church that died unexpectedly and tragically. So little Amy went to this man in the church and said, asked if her friend was in heaven. And then this man, who I will not designate with the term pastor because he's not a pastor, he's anything but a pastor, said, well, if she didn't confess all of her sins the moment before her death, she would spend eternity in hell. And I would say that man does not understand the means of salvation nor the permanency of God's love. Because there's nothing that can happen in the future, including the judgment of God that can separate a believer from the love of Christ. So there's no state of being. There's no supernatural power. There's no good angel. There's no bad angel. Not now, not ever, that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then Paul adds on powers. Do you see that in your Bible, powers, plural? In other places in, the, in our Bible, that's the word to describe miracles. Paul's saying there's not going to be some miracle of God that's going to separate you from the love of God. God might speak and hang the stars in the sky. God might cause the Red Sea to part. God might hold the sun still so a battle can be won. God might stand in a fiery furnace with three teenage boys. God might send a great fish to swallow, swallow a prophet. God might walk on water. God might feed a stadium full of people with a little boy's sack lunch. God might give blind man new eyes. God might raise the dead. But one thing God won't do is to separate one of his children from his love. So there is no mighty work. There is no mighty power. There's no state of being. There's no supernatural power. There's no period of time. In all eternity, there's no miracle of any kind that will separate a child of God from the love of God. And if that's not enough, Paul adds on nor heights nor depths. You're like, what are you ta- what's Paul talking about there? Well, the word for height, Paul is describing some star that is in its furthest orbit, way out in the galaxy. That's what Paul is saying He's saying there's nothing, there's nothing in the infinite of space that can separate you. 
and there's nothing in the depths. This is being a star in its smallest orbit. That, that's what Paul is saying. There's nothing in the extreme, infinite expanses of our universe. There's nothing right here in our galaxy that will separate you from the love of God. So there's no state of being. There's no holy angel, no unholy angel. There's no dimension of time, either eternity past or eternity future. There's no power source. There's no source in the endless universe to be able to separate you from God's love. There's nothing in this life. There's nothing in life to come. There's nothing in the world of angels, nothing in the world of demons, no power, nothing on earth, nothing. Do you understand what Paul's trying to say? Nothing. And just in case there's that one person that's still sitting there, except in that one thing that you think that Paul forgot to cover, Paul adds on, nor anything else in all creation. Means there's no exceptions. None should be able to separate the child of God from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand that the love of God towards us is all bound up in Jesus Christ? And the reason why God has set his eternal love on us is because he's covered us with the righteousness of Christ. And he's, so his love for us is not conditional on us, but it's all in Jesus. You understand what Paul is saying? He's saying that the love of God, it cannot be changed. The love of God is absolutely unalterable. But then there's some that are thinking, well, we can, we can separate ourselves. That's pretty prideful when you really think about it. That might be the height of pride to say, I can undo what the unchangeable, perfect, holy God has said is unchangeable. That I can break the promises of the God that never lies? Whoa, hold your horses, buddy. Because if you believe that, let's just go down the thinking of that. That means that God foreknew us. We, we studied this earlier in, the, in Romans chapter 8, that God foreknew us and he predestined us. He called us. We said, yes, that's salvation. You're now justified. You're, you're given the righteousness of Christ. And then God gave his word. He gave his promise. He said, you can take this to the bank. There's future glorification coming your way for the believer, for the child of God. And we're not even done yet. We're not done. Then God the Father indwelt God the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, in the believer. And to say that you can forfeit your salvation, that means that you can kick God himself, third member of the Trinity, out of your life so, so that the individual, the adopted son, adopted daughter, can go spend eternity in hell separated from God. Here's what Paul would say to that. He would say, no, that is never, ever, ever going to happen. Paul wants you to know, would you recognize that you're a wretch, that you're a sinner, that there's no second way to heaven, that God himself sent God the Son to go to the cross and die in your place to give you the righteousness of Christ. It's a done deal. And then to give you the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and dwelt in your heart to confirm this, it's better than this. So here's my closing question. Do you know the love of God that we're talking about? Have you given your life to Jesus? Because there must come this time when you recognize your sinfulness and the perfection, the holiness of a holy God and the awesomeness of the Savior Jesus. And the Bible has the most beautiful promise in the whole world that says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Lord willing, we're going to study that verse in, in length next, next week. Two weeks from now, excuse me. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I would beg you if I could. 
do it now. To call out to him, to recognize, say, dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And my, my sins, it separates me from you. But you love me so perfectly so much you sent Jesus Christ to pay for my crimes, to pay my fine so I could be with you for all eternity. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen.